Okay. Acts chapter 2, I think that's verses 1 to 41. Um, <laughs> we're not going to read two chapters. Um, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the leaven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died 
and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all whom are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I want to thank you guys for your warm welcome uh, this weekend. I've had a really great time. I actually came to Adelaide um, on my honeymoon. And I can't truthfully say I've had quite as much fun this time as then. (laughs) But it runs a close second. I've probably seen more of Adelaide this time than then. Now, it's not every day at church that you see two gay men dressed as nuns. But one night when I walked into church, I saw these two nuns' habits from behind. I thought, well, that's unusual. We don't often get nuns at our church. But I thought, well, I'll head over to them. And I, I, As I got a little closer, the thought occurred to me, These are a pair of muscular nuns. (laughs) So I kept on walking. And as I got closer, I got a little bit more suspicious because you see, not every nun has tattoos on their knuckles. I think in the end, though, what gave it away were the beards. (laughs) So I sit down next to these two guys and I was immediately hit with this alcoholic waft As the first one, the one sitting closest to me, turned and he said, G'day, I'm Mother Mary Megamouth. (laughs) What do you say at that minute? Suddenly Greg isn't as impressive a name, is it? I I needed a title. (laughs) The next one leant over, the the first one, and said, How are you? I'm Mother Mary, quite contrary. (laughs) And I thought, I'm in for a long night. But we actually got chatting. And we had a good yak for about 10 minutes. And then the meeting began and it all sort of started. And about 10 minutes into the meeting, they got up and they walked out. And I sat there debating, you know, oh, what am I going to do? Do I follow them? Do I stay in? Do I walk out? And then I thought, 
blow it, I have a crack. So I walked out into the car park and I asked them if there was anything I could help them with. And Mother Mary Megamouth, who by this point was very sober, turned and looked me right in the eye and said, do you think God hates homosexuals? I was like, oh. I said, look, I don't think God hates anyone the way you're using the word hate there. And he said, do you think God hates homosexuality? And I said, yeah, yeah, God is against homosexuality. God teaches against it. It's a sin. And he said, well, I don't want to believe in your God. And I knew I was on thin ice. But I thought, well, what can they do to me? They're only a pair of nuns. So, <laughs> so I said to him, but what if my God happens to be the real one? And he stopped and he paused for a minute and then he said, I don't even want to think about that. And they both turned and they walked away. And I went inside and I was kind of sad about it. And, but really, even though theirs is a little bit more out there, it's a pretty common response, isn't it? Not just with homosexuality, but with almost every issue. I, I disagree with Jesus about marriage, uh, about sexuality, uh, about forgiveness or hell or other religions and the best way for me to deal with it is I'm just going to pretend he's not there I'm just going to put Jesus out of my mind because the Jesus I would prefer to believe in believes something different that Jesus I don't want to face the problem is the resurrection means that Jesus cannot be ignored no matter how much we disagree with Jesus the resurrection means Jesus cannot be ignored because as we turn to Acts 2, you'll see the resurrection means all authority. And it starts with a curious kind of event. Jews from every nation are gathered together in Jerusalem. And look, there's nothing particularly curious about that. The Jews gathered in Jerusalem three times every year. There were three festivals that the Jews would come to Jerusalem for. You probably know them. They're the Passover, the Tabernacles and Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was... The feast that was about celebrating the harvest. So at the end of seven weeks of hard work harvesting all of the crops, all of Israel came and they celebrated God's goodness by sacrificing to him. It was often called the feast of the, the first fruits because they'd offer up to God all of their first fruits. So there was nothing particularly unusual about the Jews getting together in Jerusalem. What was unusual is what happened next. Have a look in 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one another in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these men speaking Galileans? So how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism... Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. 
See, Jesus' apostles, Jesus' disciples, they're all gathered together and they're having this feast. And in, just like Jesus promised in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes on them. This great wind comes and tongues of fire and, and then they do this really weird thing. They start speaking in other languages. And you can see the great list of languages there from verse 9, the Parthians and Medes and Elamites and so on. And everyone's blown away and they ask the obvious question. The obvious question is verse 12. What does this mean? Because you see, that's the thing about miracles. They're impressive and all, but they're basically senseless. They're, they're hard to interpret. What, is it, what does it mean when you see something that's miraculous? So for, imagine I did a miracle now. Imagine, imagine I pointed at Ken and I raised him into the air and I brought him over to my middle finger and then I just span him around a little bit on my finger and then deposited him headfirst into the grand piano. What would that mean? I mean, it'd be impressive. It'd be a little bit fun. <laughs> but what would you think about it? I mean, what do you think about me? Do you then think that I am God? Do you think that I'm Satan? Do you, do you think that I hate music? Do you, what do you think about Ken, apart from the fact that he looks better upside down at a piano? What did, that's the thing about miracles. They're impressive, but they don't actually communicate anything in and of themselves. And so the people ask the obvious question, what does this mean? Some of them misinterpret it and assume they're drunk. And so for the rest of the chapter, Peter explains what it means. And his answer is, it means the book of Joel. So look in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd and said, Fellow Jews, you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, which shows this never happened in Newcastle because that is no impediment to Newcastle, believe you me. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will receive visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says, if you want to understand what you've just seen, as miraculous as it is, you need to understand the prophet Joel. Because this is what he was talking about. That's what Peter's saying. And what Joel was talking about was the end of the world. So see there, in verse 17, what time Joel said it was, it's the last days. And down in verse 20, it's the day of the Lord. So right the way through the Old Testament, God promises a particular day that's to come called the day of the Lord. And it's an extraordinary day, isn't it? It's a huge day. It's the day when God judges the world. It's the Daniel 12 kind of day we saw in the first talk. It's the resurrection day. And Peter says, what you're seeing here with these people speaking in tongues and tongues of fire and so on, that's today, the day of the Lord. And you can see what sort of day it is in verse 19. I'll show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. See, the day of the Lord is a terrible day. It's blood, it's fire, it's billows of smoke. It's the day when God destroys the wicked. And Peter says, that's today. That's what you're seeing before you. 
But it's not just that, it's also the day of salvation. Because look in verse 17, in the last days God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy. You see what's going to happen at this day of judgment? Not only will the, the, the wicked be judged, but God's people will begin to prophesy. They'll get his Holy Spirit and verse 21, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are two halves to this day of the Lord, not, not in time, but two things are happening. God is judging the wicked and pouring out his spirit on the saved. And Peter says, welcome to judgment day. Welcome to the day of the Lord, because the spirit is right here before you. God's people are prophesying right here before you. They're not just speaking in other languages. Even the people can see they are declaring the wonders of God. And, jo- and Peter says, Joel is happening today. And just as an aside, this is one of those passages that actually opens our mind up to the bigness of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. See, most Christians really love the, the Holy Spirit, but we have a fairly narrow view of him. We tend to think of him as he gives us gifts, that's right. He makes us holy, he, makes us, uh, he changes us, that's right. But the Holy Spirit is also the sign that the world has come to its end. Because when was God going to send the Spirit? Well, in the Old Testament, in places like Joel and in Ezekiel 36 and 37 and in Isaiah 11, God was going to send the Spirit at the end of the world. God was going to send the Spirit at the time of the judgment so that when they saw the Spirit, the thing they should ask, the thing they should say is, well, clearly the world is about to end. Clearly God is about to judge. And yet you have to ask at this point, well, why now? Why is it that the end of the world has come, the day of the Lord has come now at the feast of the first fruits? What's happened? And Peter says, Jesus. Jesus is what's happened. Jesus has come and he's died and he's risen. So have a look in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, why has Joel 2 happened now? Why is the end of the world now? Peter said, it's because of of Jesus. Which shows us, again, just as an aside, Acts chapter 2 is not about speaking in tongues. We get all excited about Acts chapter 2 and speaking in tongues. And yes, speaking in tongues is there. But notice, Peter doesn't mention it. Peter doesn't refer to the speaking in tongues bit. It's it's, because he's got something far more important to talk about. He's talking about Jesus. And Peter says, Jesus, that's why the judgment day is here. Because look in verse 22. God did miracles, signs and wonders through Jesus. And what did Joel predict in the day of the Lord? Well, verse 19, miracles, signs and wonders. See, Jesus' miracles were a message. They weren't just about showing off. They weren't even just about compassion. No, Jesus, Peter says, Jesus' miracles were Joel 2 in action. 
Jesus' miracles were the miracle signs and wonders of the day of the Lord, which means that when the Jews saw Jesus coming and doing those miracles, when they saw him raising the dead, when they saw him casting out demons, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to repent. They were supposed to see that the day of the Lord had come and they were supposed to call on the name of the Lord, like Joel said, and repent. That's what John the Baptist had been telling them to do, wasn't it? When they saw all these miracles and they should have said, crikey, judgment day is here. I'd better turn back to God while I can. But Peter says, what did you do instead? You killed God's messenger. The one God sent to warn you, you killed him. And you can imagine at this point how they're starting to feel. It's judgment day. And we killed the God. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe maybe all that fun we had at Jesus' expense, maybe that was one huge mistake. But it gets worse. Because look in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The Jews killed Jesus, but God raised him. God has reversed their decision. God's repudiated their decision. God has completely rejected their decision in the most emphatic way you could ever imagine. Because not only does God raise Jesus from the dead, he raises him up to the very throne of David in heaven at God's right hand. So look in verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you won't abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life and you'll fill me with joy in your presence. Now, those words come from Psalm 16, a psalm that King David wrote. And if you had read David's words back in about a thousand or so BC, you might have thought, that David was saying that he personally would never die. My body will live in hope. You won't abandon me to the grave. You won't let your Holy One see decay. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, eternal pleasures at your right hand. It looks a lot like David saying that he's not going to die. And the problem is, everyone in the audience that day knew that David did die in 961 BC. And so look what Peter says in verse 29. Brothers, I can confidently tell you the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb's here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he'd place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. See, Peter says David's words were absolutely true. He just wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus, his descendant, the real Christ, the king who'd come from David's family, who God would raise from the dead. And not only has Jesus been raised, he's been exalted to God's right hand, to David's throne in heaven. So look in verse 34, 
For David didn't ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. That's Psalm 110. And now that Jesus has been raised, he's sitting at God's right hand. And what's about to happen? God is about to put all of Jesus' enemies underneath his feet. And those enemies are standing right in front of Peter this day. Judgment day has come. And guess who the judge is? The one you just killed. What a mistake. The one you crucified, the one you rejected, the one you laughed at and you mocked and you scorned, you killed him but God has raised him. And now Jesus has poured out his spirit to show that judgment day has come. Do you see what Peter is saying? You have made the worst mistake that has ever been made by anybody in history. And in verse 36, he just rubs it in. Look in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the Lord who judges from Joel 2. He's the Christ who sits at God's right hand from Psalm 110. Can you imagine how they feel at that minute? Can you imagine, you know that feeling in your heart when you've really, when you've really made a mistake. As it dawns on them what they've done. Here's a man. Here's a man who's made a mistake. Take a look at the picture for a second. You can see where he crashed through the guardrail up on the right hand side of the picture. Up where the people are standing by the road. So he was actually driving from the right of the picture to the left and he went through the guardrail he flipped end over end and he ended up facing in the ditch in the wrong direction that's a pretty big mistake isn't it when you look at it that's you can imagine him standing there in the ditch and going close shave but when you pull back and you see what was at the bottom of that ditch kind of reveals the magnitude of the stuff up doesn't it some mistakes are so huge that every other kind of mistake just seems like nothing compared running into someone's backside at the lights that's a mistake killing the lord of the universe the one who is about to judge you and everybody else it doesn't get any bigger than that and they realize it too Look what they say in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Good question. There's nowhere to run. They are in deep poo. That's what Peter's been telling them. Except look what Peter says. It's amazing. Verse 37. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all the whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Amazingly, even after what they have done, Peter says, it's not too late. It's not too late. You can still be saved. Even now you can be forgiven. All you've got to do is repent, turn back, 
That's, you know, that's what the word repent means. It means turn back. It means do a U-turn. Go the opposite direction. You killed Jesus. Now the time is to come to repent and turn back to him. That's what the baptism was a sign of, that fresh start. And Jesus says, and Peter says, how amazing is this? If you do this, you will be forgiven. Even after everything they've done, isn't it extraordinary that God is so willing to forgive? Even after the magnitude of their mistake. In fact, one of the most amazing little things tucked into this passage is it's not just that God is still willing to forgive them, it's that God always planned to forgive them. So look in verse 23 and see who planned all of this in the first place. God did. All of this was God's plan. Jesus was handed over to them by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The wickedest crime in history... And God planned it. And he planned it so that he could forgive them. See, Jesus' death was more than just a crime. It was the payment for the crime. Jesus was dying so that God could forgive them. And not just forgive them for killing his sons, but to forgive us for every act of evil. That is, even as those men committed the most hateful act in history, even as they were doing it, God was securing their forgiveness for it through the most hateful act in history. It's remarkable. And Peter says, you can be forgiven. You can receive the Holy Spirit and you will be one of those people who call out to the, to the Lord on the day of the Lord and you'll be saved. But hurry, he says, save yourself from this corrupt generation. There is not a moment to lose because judgment day is here. Do you see what the resurrection does? The resurrection declares Jesus' authority. They killed him. God raised him. And he didn't just raise him. He raised him to the highest place in the universe. To the eternal throne of David at God's right hand. And everyone is going to be put underneath his feet. And the Jews ask exactly the right question of the resurrection. What should we do now? What do you do when judgment day has come and this man is your judge? And it is the same question that we need to keep asking each other and everyone else. Because judgment day is still here. From, the day we, from before we were born until the very end of our lives, unless Jesus comes back, we live in judgment day. And Pentecost was just the first fruits of it. That's why this all happened on the day of Pentecost... Because it wasn't just the first fruits of Israel's harvest, it was the first fruits of judgment and salvation. And so what should you do? Well, if Peter were here today, he would say, you should turn to Jesus. You should turn to Jesus and you should trust him and you should serve him and you should bow down before him. And you should give to Jesus everything that's due to him. You should give to Jesus all of your dreams all of your money, all of your heart, all of your life, your marriage, your children, your dreams, your ambitions, your last dying breath belongs to Jesus because he is the risen king. That's what you should do with this man. See, the resurrection really asks us a hard question and that is, have you been taking Jesus seriously? Have you, have you understood the magnitude of this man? I know you're probably a Christian, yeah, but even as a Christian, have you been taking Jesus seriously? 
Have you been taking him as seriously as Peter makes him here? Serious enough to say, Jesus, you own me. So wherever you tell me to go, Jesus, I'll go. You show me what to do, Jesus, and I'll do it. And I won't whinge. I won't moan. I won't count the cost. I won't complain. I won't look back. Tell me what to do. I won't act like a martyr, how much I've had to give up. Jesus, I'm at your disposal. I'm nothing but a servant. You want me to give up my job, Jesus? Done. You want me to stay single for you, Jesus? Well, with your strength, I'll do it. You want me to give away my money? Well, it's not mine. Done. You want me to finally put aside the porn that I've been dallying with for the last five years? I'll do it. You want me to forgive the person who hurt me and I've just been holding on to that nub of bitterness in my heart? With your strength, Jesus, I'll obey you. You're commanding me to bring every single part of my life and to lay it at your feet to do with as you choose. Well, Jesus, you're the risen king, so I've got no choice. I must. See, the resurrection calls us to take Jesus seriously. It calls us to take obedience seriously in a way that going into full-time ministry never will. See, one of the mistakes people make is that they think that in going into full-time ministry, they'll finally deal with their sins. That, that being in, in vocational ministry, that's, that is going to get me serious about obeying God. I remember in 1993, lying in a bunk at a CV conference. That day, I had just been offered a job the next year to do MAP. And I remember lying in my bunk and thinking, I'm a leader of God's people now. It really is time to get my lust and masturbation under control. Because I'm a leader now. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the shepherds. I've got to... You know how long that resolution lasted? To the end of the weekend. Because you see, going into vocational ministry is not a strong enough motive for you to put aside your sin. Because in a couple of days, you get used to being in vocational ministry. If Jesus, the risen Lord of the universe, won't do it, then the fear of your trainer won't do it. You can be certain of that. Don't put aside sin because you want to go into vocational ministry. Put aside sin because your risen Lord calls you to obey. This is a Jesus you don't dally with. But you know, there's another application for this that comes from Jesus' risen authority. It's in Matthew 28. Come with me there. This is where we're going to finish. See, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives a different application to his risen authority. Have a look in verse 16. This. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
going or go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So here is Jesus, the risen one. He's standing before his disciples, risen from the dead and what does he say to them? Well really, when you look at it, Jesus says the content of the gospel and the extent of the gospel. And the content of Jesus' gospel is pretty much exactly the same as the content of Peter's gospel. It's verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's just what Peter said, isn't it, in Acts chapter 2. Takes Jesus a lot fewer words to say it. But now that he's raised, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Now, if you expand all of that out, you get David's throne and everything, but that's exactly the same message. The content of Jesus' gospel and the content of Peter's gospel is exactly the same. But Jesus' application is different here because his audience is different. Peter's audience was a bunch of unrepentant Jews who needed converting. Jesus' audience is disciples. Jesus' audience is like this room. And to the disciples, Jesus says... The extent of this gospel must match its content. The extent of the gospel must match its content. The content? It's verse 18. All authority has been given to Jesus. And so the extent is verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, the extent of Jesus' gospel, of his authority, must match its content. All authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and tell everybody about Jesus. It's the most obvious, natural, logical conclusion to draw from the gospel. All the nations have been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and tell all of the nations about Jesus. Jesus owns everybody, so therefore go and tell everybody. Jesus' authority is universal, and so therefore his preaching must be universal. It's the nature of a gospel. So in, the, in, in ancient Rome, a conquering general would come back to Rome, having conquered Gaul or wherever it was, and then he would send out the messengers with his gospel to declare in his realm exactly what is achieved. And you know how far they'd go? To the edge of his realm. But they couldn't step one foot further than that. If they hadn't conquered England, they couldn't go into England with their gospel. Because the gospel of the king only goes as far as the king's rule. Jesus says, my authority is universal. And so my proclamation must be universal if there is one person on this planet who does not yet know that Jesus is Lord then that is an offense against the king that's an injustice against the authority of this king it's a denial of the resurrection fact it's wrong and it's unjust and it must be put right see people who understand the resurrection people who are disciples know what must be done the gospel has got to go out the gospel has got to go out. They say, at one level, the reason we evangelize is we look at 1.25 million Adelaideans going to hell and that burns our hearts. And we look at 2 billion people in the planet going to hell and that burns our hearts. But you know, even if none of them were saved, we would still preach the gospel. Because the gospel of the king has to go out. 
our burning sense of loyalty and justice to this king means that we preach his name so go go take the gospel of jesus to the ends of his authority become disciple making disciples of jesus whether you happen to go into vocational ministry or not your job for the rest of your life is abundantly clear Whether you stay in Adelaide or whether you go to the rest of the world, you have a job to do for the rest of your life and that is you are a disciple who makes disciples. Your Lord has sent you. In fact, more than that, your Lord is calling you. Because you can see what he says at the end of the passage, he's with us to the very end of the age. Jesus is calling us to join him on the most marvelous victory march where he is marching through the world with us calling people to his banner and we march in his train inviting people to come and join the king laying our lives down before him we are declaring with Jesus his resurrection authority it's like that wonderful scene in the Narnia books where Aslan marches his way through Narnia and the children and all of the animals march behind him and people fall in that's the rest of our lives to march with Jesus as our, at our head preaching his resurrection authority for as far as it extends and so if you do go into vocational ministry go and be a gospel preacher not a creed believer i talked about this last night so many bible teaching bible believing christians mistake our gospel for a creed See, a creed is just something you believe in. That's a good idea, a creed. A creed is a series of ideas that you ascribe to. It's a statement of belief that you give assent to. But a creed is different to a gospel. A a gospel is not just a series of ideas. It's a proclamation that demands a response. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me is not a creed. It's a gospel. And faithfulness to a gospel is different to faithfulness to a creed. To be faithful to a creed, all you have to do is give assent to it. All you have to do is say, yes, I believe in those things and I will hold to them. To be faithful to a gospel, you must preach it. If you don't, you are not faithful to the gospel. And we evangelicals, we keep forgetting that. We keep turning the gospel into a creed, something we believe instead of something we preach to the non-Christian world. And so we go into churches and the question that we ask is, was the message faithful? But that's only half the question to ask. The question that we need to ask then is, who was the message preached to? Because if the non-Christian is not there to hear it, then we haven't preached the gospel faithfully. You see, we, we measure churches and ministries by how doctrinally sound they are. Are they four-pointers or are they five-pointers? What do they think of women in ministry? But we never ask, who are they evangelizing? And we have Christians who are fiercely committed to nailing down every doctrine and nailing up every heretic and are rigidly keeping out the false teachers. And we forget that the gospel is not about keeping people out, it's about bringing people in. And so take the gospel out. If you go into full-time ministry, don't just be satisfied with getting the gospel right. Get the gospel out. Get it right. But remember it's a gospel and not a creed. Take the gospel to Adelaide. Take it to South Australia. Take it to Australia. Take it to the very ends of the earth. But never be satisfied until the extent of Jesus' authority matches its content. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, going, make disciples of all the nations. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you. For you have raised Jesus to the highest place. You have made him the name above all names. That at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Help us to know that. And help us to know the full consequences of it. We pray for a day when there will be not one person on this planet who stands against Jesus' authority. When there will be not one person on this planet who does not know that Jesus died and rose. We long for Jesus to be treated like he should be. Father, we're tired of Jesus' name being taken in vain. We're tired of people ignoring him. Father, how greatly must you feel that offence? Break us out of our apathy. Break us out of our materialism. Break us out of our fear and our conservatism. Drive us out, we pray, not just to Adelaide or Australia, but to the very ends of the world. Father, we pray for a great harvest. A great harvest of Bible teachers who will take the gospel, who will march with Jesus, calling people to his banner. And Father, we pray that more and more will flock. And Father, we long for the day when Jesus will come back and we will go and rejoice in him. Father, please send Jesus. We long for him to be honoured as he should be. We can't wait to be among the throng of people who praise his name, who say glory to the lamb who died and was slain and raised for us. But until you come, help us not to waste a second. Help us not to waste a person that we meet. Help us not to waste an opportunity. Help us to desperately, urgently know the time. And Father, please give us that clear picture always in our hearts. Help us not to be trapped by the weeds that grow around us. Instead, we pray that like Jesus called us to, we will listen, that we'll pay attention to his teachings. And then like Jesus told us to, we pray that we will speak boldly, bravely for his name. Amen.